Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. You're listening to Breakdown, an exclusive podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. For more information, including photos, court records, and video, go to AJC.com slash news slash breakdown. Also, please join our Breakdown Facebook group to meet our reporters and ask questions about our story. Previously on Breakdown. For the record... We don't believe this is a case about race. We're aware that that's come up. We, we don't believe that. One thing I'll just get, when I put my hand up like this, you need to stop. Here's the, the court's position. The more we talk about this, the greater the issue becomes. We're trying a case. Okay. We're going to get a panel in, and there are issues that we need to work through. This particular question, as it is phrased, is not going to be asked. Now getting a little bit more specific, not necessarily participating in marches or going to places where there are conversations, but supporting in any way the Black Lives Matters movement. Very good, important movement in our country. Have you supported that? Anything from just having positive feelings about it in your heart and sharing with others or even financially supporting more bumper stickers, Welcome back to Breakdown. I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and I'm joined by my AJC colleague, Asia Simone Burns, from our breaking news team. Well, we're almost there. Or at least I think we're almost there. Listeners of Breakdown will remember that during season two, the hot car case involving Justin Ross Harris, the defense moved for a change of venue after a full jury pool had been qualified. And... The judge granted it. She delayed the trial for months by moving it from Cobb County in Metro Atlanta to the courthouse here in Brunswick, the same place where Travis and Greg McMichael and Roddy Bryan are on trial, charged with the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. We certainly don't want that to happen this time around. No way. At the end of Business Friday, the court had qualified 55 jurors. 64 are needed before the state and defense begin exercising their strikes to get 12 jurors and four alternates. So the end is in sight. And this has been a fascinating, if not laborious, process. Many prospective jurors have continued to come into court saying they believe Travis, Greg, and Roddy are guilty of something. And their opinions are so fixed, they aren't about to change them. Those jurors are being dismissed on grounds they can't give the defendants a fair trial. They're just too biased. And I keep getting asked by lawyers, why doesn't the defense file a motion for a change of venue? My answer is, 
the defense seems to be willing to go to trial here in Glen County. I would think the chance for a change of venue motion is not completely off the table, but for now, it looks like we're staying put. You know, there's actually a case law on this that says at some point that if you lose that many jurors, maybe half like for being uh, unable to serve because of publicity, that you're entitled to a change of venue if you want one. And those, that, that happens from time to time. Sometimes it works. That's Atlanta lawyer Jack Martin. He's defended a number of high-profile clients. Like Richard Jewell, the security guard. He was wrongly suspected of planning the bomb at Centennial Olympic Park during the 1996 Olympic Games in Atlanta. And Jamil Alamine, formerly known as H. Rap Brown, the civil rights activist. He was convicted of murder for fatally shooting one sheriff's deputy and seriously wounding another. As for Martin, he says sometimes it's better to wait a while before filing a change of venue motion. I had a bad experience one time with, a, with that, in which we had moved for a change of venue, and we were losing a lot of jurors in a very bad case in a small county. And, uh, but I was learning as we went through the process that the jurors that were being qualified were the type of jurors who, from a defense point of view, you'd want. And the ones you were losing are the ones that would have been awful. The case was moved to another county, and the defendant was given the death penalty. Although, Martin notes, it was later overturned on appeal. Still, it was a very close call. And so sometimes you want to wait to see how the panel develops before you make a final decision whether you want to move. Because sometimes, uh, having lost a lot of the really bad jurors from a defense point of view, uh, you really wind up with jurors who are less invested in the community, less invested in uh, publicity, and just maybe more ill-informed. I hate to say it, but that's often the type of jury you want, especially in a case like this. Another thing to keep in mind is that Travis Gregg and Roddy have been indicted for federal hate crimes. That trial is set for February the 7th. It looks like the lawyers here in state court want their case to be tried first. Any change of venue here will very likely delay the start of this trial until after the federal hate crimes trial. It's just another wrinkle to think about. Back to jury selection. After almost two weeks of seemingly endless questions and very long days, you'd be surprised at some of the jurors who've been qualified. Very surprised. Some seem like jurors the defense would love to have. People who know some of the defendants or their spouse or their fiancé. And there's some who seem tailor-made for the prosecution, unabashedly antagonistic against the defendants, supportive of Ahmad and his family. For example... Juror 381 is a white man who told prosecutors he took part in the I Run With Mod campaign last year. He even posted a video of himself running in it on social media. A former law enforcement official, Juror 381, said he had seen the video of Ahmad's death at least five times and isn't sure chasing Ahmad was the best decision for Travis, Greg, and Roddy to make. And he says they should have called the police and let them handle it. And when Juror 381 was asked if he believed the defendants had committed a crime, he said, yes. Then, when asked what crime, he replied, murder? Juror 383 is a white woman, and she says she knows Roddy Bryan and his ex-wife because she's taught the couple's child. She also used to go scuba diving with his fiancée. And she said, while they haven't spoken in a while, they remain friends on Facebook, and she believes they are still friends in real life. 
She also said that despite her personal connections to Roddy's family, she feels that she can be fair and impartial. Juror 479 put a I'm run with mod symbol on her Facebook page. She's also one of the few prospective jurors who said she actually wants to serve on this jury. And she also thinks the old Georgia flag is a racist symbol. But when asked if she had an opinion in the case, she said her opinion is they want justice. She also said she wants everything to be fair. She said she looked at the case through the eyes of a mother and said that if her child had been killed in the way that Ahmad was, she would want answers. Upon hearing this, Ahmad's mother, Wanda Cooper, left the courtroom in tears. And juror 236, she said she had known Greg McMichael through work for about 30 years and that she saw him in passing in professional settings. Doesn't consider him to be a friend, but said she had a positive relationship with him. She said the thing that disturbs her about the case is that Travis, Greg, and Roddy took matters into their own hands instead of calling the police. But she says that despite knowing Greg, she could be impartial. The jurors, some of the jurors that I've heard of, their life experiences, I've actually been a bit surprised to see that they're still on the qualified panel. For example, those who have had the McMichaels to their home as house guests. Uh, I'm not sure if this is the same or a different juror, but who knew one of them for decades, I believe, was the description. That's jury consultant Denise Delarue, who you've heard in prior episodes. Um, other jurors who have participated in events and uh, support of the Ahmad Arbery cause, um, who definitely have feelings uh, about the case. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think one of the qualified jurors referred to it as a hate crime. Um, these are deeply held beliefs or uh, life experiences that affect jurors deeply. And seeing them in the panel of qualified jurors is a, a bit surprising and a, a bit concerning. It's concerning because I don't see, since jurors are human beings and not computers, that they can possibly put those beliefs or those life experiences aside, which you know are the magic words, and view the case objectively. Delarue knows the answer that can get even the most questionable juror qualified. We know that that fair and impartial phrase tends to be the magic words for judges many times. And jurors want to believe they can be fair and impartial. All of us think of ourselves as fair people. And most of us are in most circumstances. We all know, and we can all name them for ourselves. There are situations in which we just simply could not be unbiased. That doesn't mean you're not a fair person, but you might not be the most fair person in that situation. I would think a lot of these jurors fall into that category. And the ones who say, I'll try, they mean it. it. It's just very problematic. We asked Delarue about the court qualifying the woman who posted, I run with Maud on her Facebook page and said she wanted to serve. That is stunning to me. The fact that a juror had the picture frame, I run with a Maud, and coupled with the fact that the juror says she wants to serve, and then <laughs> to see that justice is done. What, what could that possibly mean to that juror? What could justice possibly look like? Um, I, I can't fathom that that's a juror who is truly qualified to sit on this jury. Who would want to serve on this jury? 
unless they're you know a law student uh, or just really interested in the process or they are seeking their five minutes of fame, which happens sometimes, or they have an outcome that they they want to um, see take it take effect. And I think that juror could most likely fall into that category. Certainly there are jurors who are willing to do their responsibility if asked. That's a very different question than who wants to be on this jury. I personally would be very frightened of virtually any juror who wants to be on this jury. And about the former law enforcement officer? How can a juror who has already decided that there has been a crime committed and that crime in fact is murder, the crime with which they're charged. And that juror knows what he's talking about because he's a law enforcement official. How can that juror possibly presume these defendants to be innocent? Those two things are just mutually exclusive by definition in my understanding. So I don't know how you can presume they're guilty of a crime called murder and presume them innocent at the same time. Delarue also said there may be an explanation why Judge Timothy Walmsley is willing to qualify some of these jurors. You'll remember he's giving the defense 24 peremptory strikes and the prosecution 12. That's a lot more than normal. Um, So I think perhaps the judge is thinking that the defense and the prosecution have enough peremptory challenges to get rid of these jurors that he's qualifying. Um, So it's sort of, you know, they have to qualify more because of these additional peremptory challenges they've been given, but they have more peremptory challenges to get rid of these jurors who had never been qualified. And as you probably know, in Georgia, if there is to be an issue on appeal for one of these jurors being qualified who shouldn't be, the juror has to be seated as a juror or the issue has gone. So in other words, this law enforcement uh, person who already thinks that the crime has been committed and it, it would be murder, if that's error for the judge to qualify that juror, that juror would have to serve on the jury in order for that to be an issue on appeal. Most lawyers aren't going to take that chance. You can be in the position of having to use a huge number of your peremptory challenges on what should have been challenges for cause. So you have very few left to use in the way that we traditionally are able to use peremptory challenges. We also talked to Ziv Cohen. He's a forensic psychiatrist from Cornell University and has consulted on dozens of murder cases. Well, I I think that, you know, this is a fraught jury selection. It's a small town, uh, a local community, uh, and this is a case that has garnered nationwide attention, but certainly in the local community, uh, people can't have ignored it. And, and, and it's hard to find someone who hasn't formulated an opinion, um, especially with a video. So, uh, you know, the video that's out there and circulating. So I, I think that the jury selection is very, very fraught from the perspective of finding a jury that's not tainted, a jury that doesn't have a prior opinion of the case. In some big, high-profile cases, qualifying some questionable jurors is almost unavoidable. Right, and I think that that's what you tend to see in cases where uh, you're you're having trouble finding anyone who who doesn't have a prior opinion. So you have to start uh, 
uh, being flexible, uh, not uh, disqualifying people for those kinds of statements if they're still willing to say that they'll keep an open mind. As for the search for those who are not so invested in the case. And then, of course, all important, and we've seen this in the in the Q&As, in the voir dire, is trying to weed out people who have some kind of a connection to the case uh, that, you know, would impair their objectivity. And in such a small community, you know, it's been uh, surprising how many of these folks uh, have a connection, a personal connection uh, to the case. And of course, that's problematic. You, you really want to have jurors who have no personal connection to the case as much as possible. But as to what's going on here in Brunswick? What, who we have are these criminal defendants uh, who are on trial for murder. And the jury selection protocol has to try to select objective jurors for them as strongly as many people feel in the community about what actually transpired. The way our criminal justice system works is, you know, innocence until proven guilty. And so, you know, I think that is sometimes, I think, hard for a community to process because you know, people want justice, people feel you know, the video is very hard to watch, it's very disturbing. So, uh, you know, it, it becomes sometimes in cases like this, just a hard bar to reach a kind of ideal that we have in our criminal justice system. But we're seeing, I think, on the ground that it's not always possible to really reach that ideal um, in specific cases. This is Breakdown. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. There's also a looming issue, the demonstrations around the courthouse and those expected to follow. They're coordinated by the Transformative Justice Coalition, a nonprofit headquartered from Washington, D.C. and dedicated to bringing justice and equality here and abroad. The coalition brought a busload of members to the courthouse, and one day last week, they bust over to the Satilla Shores neighborhood to congregate where Ahmad was shot and killed. His father, Marcus Arbery, was there too. The coalition also hosted town hall meetings at a nearby conference center. Most of the events were followed by local media, saturating the area with even more coverage of the case. Kevin Goff, who's Roddy Bryan's lawyer, filed a motion that asked Judge Wamsley to do something about the demonstrations outside the courthouse. He introduced aerial photos of the courthouse grounds with the demonstrators outside. He also told the judge about tweets sent out by Lee Merritt, the civil rights attorney representing the Arbery family. Adjacent to that is Lee Merritt Esquire's Twitter referencing this, and it says, Register to vote, show up for jury duty. Remember this phrase, I can be fair. And that goes to the issue of whether or not we are, we, there's been a conscious or unconscious effort to educate or inform or influence or intimidate jurors in this case. Goff continues on. Your Honor, I would remind the state that their duty in this case is not simply to convict. Their duty is to seek justice. But then 
it seems like he takes it a bit too far. And the state has an affirmative obligation to Roddy Bryan and to the other defendants in this case to ensure that they have a fair trial. And given the close and intimate relationship between the Arbery lawyers and the state in this case, who are shuttling back and forth to who knows where in the courthouse. Linda Donikoski is the lead prosecutor. First off, there's absolutely no evidence of any relationship with Lee Merritt. Lee Merritt's not sitting at this table. Lee Merritt is not employed by the Cobb County District Attorney's Office. Lee Merritt is, is somebody that I recognize but have never actually spoken to in a conversation. So this intimation by Mr. Goff is completely inappropriate, and we object to that. Goff takes another swipe at it. And if there's any evidence out there that would suggest that there's been any effort, conscious or unconscious, to tamper with this jury or influence these jurors, whether here on the courthouse steps this morning or in black media, the state has an obligation to pursue it. And I would humbly submit, as difficult and as big of a nuisance as it is, and certainly unwelcome, when we all have so much more to do in this courtroom, I think at some point the court has a duty to explore and investigate sua sponte the extent of these efforts and the extent that they've had influencing the jurors in this case. Just to let you know, sua sponte is Latin, meaning on his own motion. In other words, Goff is telling Walmsley he can do something about it on his own accord. He doesn't need to wait for someone to ask him to do it. And Dunikowski says the state has no objections because this matter has nothing to do with the state. But... The only rebuttal argument the state would have is that this has nothing to do with the state. So I am going to just not necessarily ask Mr. Goff, but just put it on the record that conflating third parties' freedom of speech rights with the state and claiming the state has some obligation to do something to violate the Constitution and those third parties' rights is inappropriate. Goff asks Wamsley to issue an order establishing a no-demonstration zone, one that's cordoned off around the grounds of the courthouse. He also asks the judge to give the demonstrators a First Amendment-protected area off to the side. And before he sits down, Goff reads one more tweet that he said Merritt posted the previous evening. Quote, picking a jury in Gwynn County is difficult. Most of not all jurors have heard of the case. Most have developed an opinion of the case. Goff continues the tweet in which Merritt references a prospective woman juror's job status. Wamsley has instructed the press and the parties not to disclose personal details about the jurors, anything that will make them easily identifiable in this relatively small community. Like their occupations, marital status, and such, he's doing all that he can to protect their anonymity. And for good reason, right? Some say they are fearful as to what may happen to them and their community if they are picked to serve and render a verdict. So, obviously, we're not going to play you the audio of Goff reading that part of the tweet that gives identifying information about the juror. But then, Goff says Merritt's tweet ends this way. She is obviously not qualified to be on this jury. This was a a really, quote-unquote, bad call by the judge. Golf also refers to an interview Merritt gave to April Ryan on The Grio, a digital media outlet geared toward the black community. It bothers me that we have an attorney who is, I believe, representing the Arbery family in their civil case in federal court, who is basically instructing for any juror that wishes to learn 
through black media, how to bypass the jury selection process established by law that this court has labored so hard to ensure was fair to all parties. Specifically, when Lee Merritt is discussing this case with April Ryan, he explains that knowledge of the case alone is not enough to disqualify. He states the question is whether they can set aside what they know. He then states, we don't say often enough. You know what? I can set that aside. I mean, he's basically inviting jurors to just, like Dorothy, there's no place like home, there's no place like home, there's no place by home. We're indoctrinating jurors to say, I can be fair, I can be fair, I can be fair. I'm not saying it's illegal. The First Amendment is, is a powerful thing. But the court's obligation, paramount obligation here, is to make sure these defendants get a fair trial. Walmsley issues his ruling. The uh, requested relief is to uh, bar, as I understand it, uh, signs or demonstrations within the area that um, Mr. Goff has defined here in the argument. Is that correct, Mr. Goff? It is, Your Honor. Yeah, let's focus on the motion itself, and then I'll address some of the um, the noise going on. Um, the court does not find that the uh, movement has met its burden uh, to limit the First Amendment rights of any individuals that um, may come to the courthouse grounds, which is a public place. Uh, I didn't ever hear any arguments with regard to the constitutional aspects of this First Amendment rights versus uh, what may be happening here. Uh, I will note because a lot of things have been noted. Uh, I will note when I came in this morning, I didn't see anyone. Uh, in fact, it has been relatively quiet on the courthouse steps. For the record, about a dozen or so demonstrators showed up in front of the courthouse that morning, probably after Wamsley had gone inside. They were as peaceful as can be, sitting in folding chairs and chanting, but not nearly as many as the week before. What's to come after testimony begins, though, is the real question. Wamsley said he's periodically checked with the local sheriff about the demonstrations. There have been no issues, no arrests, and no prospective juror expressed concerns about them. Wamsley also said he has been relatively happy with the news media's general compliance with his instructions not to report information that would help the public identify a juror. That's good news. But Wamsley wasn't finished. I will tell you, it troubles me. Significantly that any individual um, separate from the lawyers in front of me here and the media would be taking it upon themselves to create a narrative that um, does not comply with this court's uh, clear wishes with regard to jury selection, identifying jurors, and um, using platforms to influence the public. That is a concern of mine. Now, how I'm going to deal with that, based on what's been brought to the court's attention, um, specifically the tweet that was just referenced, um, I need to think that through. Because again, with regard to the motion itself, the court's denying the motion. But my concern is, particularly with this tweet, that there are individuals out there that may be calling out specific jurors. I, I don't care what they have to say about me. That's not important. Uh, people are going to agree or disagree. People in this room are going to agree and disagree with the rulings of this court. That's the nature of the beast. So that's not what I'm referencing here. What I'm referencing is uh, 
calling out individuals that may or may not be participating in this case in ways that um, attempt to influence the public and may uh, maybe indirectly have an influence upon those members of the panel. I will work through that problem. But again, as to the motion itself, it's denied. During the lunch break, I caught up with Merritt outside the courthouse. He didn't have nice things to say about Kevin Goff. Uh, this is his opportunity to say a popular name, get his face on TV. Uh, it's asinine. I think the court has agreed with that. I've gotten used to it. Um, it was a- and he says, this is why I'm here. My role in this case is the lead attorney for the estate of Ahmaud Arbery. Uh, just like there is a, a parallel federal investigation, criminal investigation, there's also a civil investigation. Uh, what comes out in that trial is critically important to the family concerning their civil claims. And, I, and then I play a role of a constitutional watchdog. I am concerned uh, about uh, whether or not the jurors are being asked appropriate questions. That is part of my role. Uh, Here's his take on the jury selection process so far. The court has been placed in a very difficult situation. We prefer that jurors be clean slates, that they have no position on the case. Uh, in, a, in a county as small and close-knit as Glen County, that is proven to be an impossible test. Everyone has heard about the case. Many people who have been qualified for the jury in other cases would have been disqualified, but because of the nature of the situation, uh, they have uh, been able to remain on the jury. As a result, uh, like I said, the court has been, in a, been placed in an unenviable position and they've made difficult decisions. Some I agree with, some I don't. When I asked him about what Wamsley had just said in court, Merritt didn't exactly address the judge's concerns head on. I appreciate that the court is not as thin-skinned as Mr. Galt. Uh, the, the court is not above criticism. Um, the judge, I think, has done some things really well, in my uh, legal opinion, and some things that could have been done better. We talked to a couple of lawyers about this predicament. One has experienced it firsthand, and the other is a First Amendment law expert. You know, in a case like this where the community is so much involved, uh, that what worries me about it is that it would intimidate jurors. Once again, criminal defense attorney Jack Martin. That they would think that if they did a a return a verdict that was consistent with what they saw in the evidence, but would not be consistent with what the public really wants, or what people in the public want, that they will be ostracized for that. And that's very worrisome. And there's not much you can do about it. I mean, I mean, people have the right to demonstrate and have the right to you know, make their views known, but it's really worrisome in a case like this. It might be one reason to think about a change of venue to a community that's not so invested in the, tri- in the outcome of the trial. But um, that's very difficult. It's, it's hard for the court to control it, uh, even though they can try, because, you know, people have the right to express their opinions, as long as they don't intimidate people. Jerry Weber is a First Amendment scholar and a lawyer for the Southern Center for Human Rights in Atlanta. He agrees there's not much the judge can do. Basically, the the rule is that, that people have the right, especially in a public area, a, a park, an outside area, to express their views. And um, it's what's called a traditional public forum, which means that free speech is kind of at its precipice in a place like that, and that it's very rare that the government can ever restrict speech in that area. Uh, they'd have to have what's called a compelling interest, and they'd have to have a very narrow restriction 
that would satisfy that interest. And so um, it, it is hypothetically possible um, for there to be restrictions in, in that kind of an area, but uh, extremely rare. And, um, you know, here the standard would have to be that those demonstrations were um, impairing in a, in a dramatic way uh, the fair trial right of the accused. And, and um, that standard is essentially almost never met um, in the context of a criminal case where there's speech happening outside of the courtroom. As to whether Wamsley could order third parties to zip their lips or turn off their Twitter feed, that's even more difficult. There are some Supreme Court decisions that deal with the ability of judges to place um, what are called gag orders um, on those present in the courtroom, on um, the the litigants, uh, on the witnesses. Um, I'm not familiar with any gag orders that would apply to persons who are not part of the court proceedings. Uh, and even then, the, the gag orders are, are very hard to impose, and there's a lot of free speech implications for them. Um, and I, 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 I'm, I'm not familiar with any cases, but it would be extremely, it's extremely difficult to place a gag order on the persons in the courtroom, the litigants, the lawyers, uh, let alone somebody who is is not part of the proceeding, and um, you know. The, the lawyer for the family is not part of the criminal proceeding. Weber points us to the infamous case involving Ohio neurosurgeon Sam Shepard. He was convicted of bludgeoning his wife to death. But in 1966, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned his second-degree murder conviction, citing a carnival atmosphere that had permeated the trial. And because extensive media reports saturated a case, in which the judge never ordered the jury to ignore and disregard the news coverage. The high court ruled that, for those reasons, Shepard was denied due process and did not receive a fair trial. It said that the trial judge failed to protect Shepard from the massive, pervasive, and prejudicial publicity accompanying his prosecution. Okay, the case is not analogous to the one being tried here in Brunswick. According to the Supreme Court opinion, for example, newspapers not only published the names of prospective jurors, they also disclosed their addresses. This led those jurors to receive letters and phone calls about the case. And when the trial began, jurors were photographed and televised when they entered and exited the courtroom. Amazing, right? I think Walmsley's head would explode if anything remotely similar to that happened here. It was truly amazing. It was incredible. And in Shepard's case, his lawyer asked for a change of venue, but the trial judge denied it. Of course, that hasn't happened here. At least, not yet. But the Shepard ruling did set a precedent. Rampant, unchecked publicity that could sway a jury can cause a conviction to be overturned. And the Supreme Court said essentially the same thing when it granted a new trial to Leslie Irvin. Irvin had been sentenced to death for six murders in and around Evansville, Indiana, in the mid-1950s. In that case, each juror indicated he could render an impartial verdict despite being exposed to sensational and pervasive publicity. But the Supreme Court said of Irvin, with his life at stake 
It is not requiring too much that he be tried in an atmosphere undisturbed by so huge a wave of public passion. That kind of hits close to home here. It sure seems to. Of course, we'll just have to see how this plays out. Something to keep in mind, for sure. But first, we need to qualify a pool to get 12 jurors and four alternates. Then there will be opening statements and testimony. We really haven't even gotten started yet. And, of course, Judge Wamsley still has some important decisions to make, such as whether to allow prosecutors to introduce into evidence photos of the vanity license plate on the front of Travis's pickup truck, the one with the old Georgia state flag with the Confederate battle emblem. Here's attorney Jack Martin again weighing Wamsley's options. Years ago, when that was the real flag of Georgia, it'd be hard to claim that you shouldn't put it on your car because it's the actual flag. But people to linger, uh, to still put that flag on their car, would cause people to wonder, you know, there must be some racial animus. You know, it's not to say uh, that that's reason enough to commit somebody of murder because uh, they, they were fearful of a black man. If the other circumstances uh, indicate that they were acting in self-defense or within the rights of the law. But uh, I think, I understand why they're doing that, and it's, it would not be wrong for the judge to say, listen, why do we do that? Well, there's enough facts in this case. You don't need to just tarnish the defendant even more with that. But it's worrisome to me that why was he still portraying that tag on his car? Martin then said this, referring to Arbery. I, I, I fear for him. I mean, I can understand exactly why he did what he did, because there he was in the middle of an area that he's not really familiar with, but somewhat familiar, but it's a white community. And all of a sudden, he's surrounded by guys with shotguns and all the images of things that happened in the past, including things that happened in this county and anywhere else in Georgia, um, uh, would make you fearful for your life. Next on Breakdown. But I've gotten some perspective on it now. We're taking a long time. I, you know, the examinations, I, you know, I think, could be shorter, but I think they are, in fact, starting to get to the core of what the court uh, wanted to get to, which is a panel of 64. It appears we're headed in that direction, in a positive direction. I would like to move a little more quickly, but um, what I think has been interesting, despite the length of the examination, that there are a number of individuals in this community that have come into this court and um, indicated to the court that they can be fair, unbiased, impartial jurors that are willing to seek the truth. And under the circumstances of this case, I think that's a good thing. As always, thank you so much for listening. We will drop episodes every Monday morning of the trial. You can follow our daily coverage on our website, AJC.com. Next week, the trial begins in earnest. Stay tuned and hold on to your seats. Be safe and take care. If you haven't been vaccinated yet, please, please do so for all of us. And get that booster too. Until next time, I'm Bill Rankin. And I'm Asia Simone Burns. You've been listening to Breakdown, hosted by Bill Rankin. Produced by Asia Simone Burns and Bill Rankin. Edited by Jennifer Brett and Jay Black. Music by Bo Emerson and Billy Guen. Sound design by Asia Simone Burns and Jay Black. Special thanks to Kevin Riley, Sean McIntosh, Leroy Chapman, Pete Corson, and Zach McGee. Please rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite download app. 
we also invite you to listen to the previous seven seasons of Breakdown. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.